Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, you're going to be a chat about the Elgin Marbles, a collection of sculptures and statues that were taken from the ruins of the Parthenon in Athens, over in Greece, uh, in the early 19th century. They were taken by a British diplomat, Thomas Bruce, the Earl of Elgin, and they ended up in the British Museum. Now, the marbles um, have been back in the news recently, just in the last couple of days, after a diplomatic spat between Britain and Greece, because Greece wants the marbles back. Britain won't return them, uh, and this still results in a lot of bad blood between these two nations. It's an issue that has somehow continued all the way through to the, to the 21st century. And it's an issue that has a very long and very involved story, I can tell you this. A lot of twists and turns. It spans almost two and a half thousand years and today we are going to be getting across the whole thing from go to woe we're going to start by talking about what the marbles actually are why and how and by whom they were created i'll talk about their historical importance of course and broad more broadly the the historical importance of the acropolis and, and the parthenon where the marbles were, were found for the longest time and we'll talk about what happened to this area, how it changed and why. And then, of course, we'll also talk about Elgin turning up, removing these marbles, how and why that happened, what the consequences of him doing this were, both for him personally and for the, the nations involved in their respective histories. And we'll also talk about what happened to the marbles once they were taken back to Britain uh, by Elgin. They were, they were stuck in the British Museum. They are still there today. And uh, as I mentioned, this is, the, this is a source of... Of enormous controversy between uh, Britain and Greece. This is a real sticking point for the two nations. It, it has kept them at odds for many, many, many years. Um, and that is also something we'll talk about as well. We'll, we'll finish up the show by talking about this controversy, uh, talking about the arguments on both sides, why Britain refuses to hand the marbles back, why Greece is so keen to have them back. Um, so, as you can imagine... A lot to get across today. It is going to be a very long episode uh, this week. We're really going to get into the weeds here. But before we begin, um, I want to thank all of the listeners who have been writing in this week. We've had a, a huge number of emails from people uh, who have been sharing their Spotify rap numbers. We've uh, we had some pretty big numbers shared last week, but uh, who boy, holy moly, the numbers the, the numbers we have this week absolutely absurd. Uh, we'll uh, we'll get into that at the end of the show. But thank you to everyone who has uh, written in this week, of course. But uh, yeah, look, let's uh, let's get stuck in here. I'm uh, I'm very keen to get underway. This is uh, this is going to be a long one, so let's not beat around the bush any further. Let's begin the story of the Elgin Marbles, uh, an ongoing story, of course. It's not a story that we can conclude, really. It, it, it is continuing. It's open ended, but uh, as I say, a long one. So uh, so let's not waste any more time and get stuck into it. Here we go. We're going all the way back. Here we're going all the way back to 447 BCE. Almost two and a half thousand years ago, we're going back to ancient Athens, where, as part of a hilltop citadel that overlooks the city known as the Acropolis, a temple called the Parthenon was built. In 447 BCE, the ancient Greek world was basking in the afterglow of having come together, having uh, having put aside their, their old differences for now, to defeat a common enemy, the invading Persian armies of the Achaemenid Empire. Now you can hear about all of these, uh, all the key battles of the of the Greco-Persian Wars in episodes 185, 186, 187. Get across them, um, but I will sort of have to spoil the ending for you here and, and tell you that the Greeks won. But the reason the reason I tell you this, the reason I have to spoil this, is because uh, that was why, in the first place, right, that the Parthenon was built. It was because of this Greek victory in the Greco-Persian Wars that the most powerful of the Greek city-states, Athens, built the Parthenon. They dedicated uh, this, this temple to uh, their goddess, Athena, uh, in celebration of the, of the huge dub that they'd just taken over the, over the Persians. And uh, construction of this temple, construction on this temple began, as I mentioned, 447 BCE. Uh, it finished in 438. Remember, BCE, we're counting years backwards here. Um, but work continued on decorating the finished building for a, for a few more years after the structure itself was completed. Incredibly skilled craftsmen from all around the Greek world. They came to Athens to work on this temple. It wasn't simple work by any means. It was highly specialised work. It required a, 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 an enormous amount of skill and experience. 
And the bloke who was put in charge, or one of the main blokes in charge at least, of the construction and, and the decoration of the Parthenon was an architect and a sculptor named Phidias. Um, now, Phidias may be a, a familiar name to some extremely alert listeners here because we met him, uh, we've met him before. We met him while we were talking about the Seven Wonders of the Ancient World, episodes 111, 112, Get Across Him. Uh, he was the one who created the Statue of Zeus, although that came along after his work on the Parthenon. But look, uh, by, by all accounts, uh, indisputably, Phidias was, was immensely talented. He's a very, very gift, uh, gifted sculptor. Um, he created a, a giant statue of Athena for the Parthenon. And he also more broadly oversaw and contributed to the sculptures that decorated the uh, the Parthenon, the rest of the, the building, uh, once the structure was finally finished. Now, to use some uh, use some technical terms here, these sculptures, the sculptures that would go on to become known as the Elgin Marbles, these sculptures uh, were and still are uh, friezes and metopes. Met- met- M-E-T-O-P-E-S, metopes, metopes. Um, from what I can tell, these are the types of sculptures that you find decorating the bit of a wall just under the ceiling or the roof. I think like the bits on the bits on top of the columns, but beneath the, the ceiling or the roof. I, I think the, the reason I'm not 100% sure on this is because it turns out that Wikipedia articles on classical architecture are somehow more impenetrable than the articles on nuclear physics. I feel like I managed to equip myself reasonably well when explaining how nukes work, episode 197, get across it. But when it came to reading about classical architecture instead, uh, I, I was baffled. Here's, here's what you're dealing with, right, when reading about friezes and, and metopes on, uh, um, on Wikipedia, right? <clears throat> In classical architecture, the frieze is the wide central section of an entablature and may be plain in the Ionic or Doric order or decorated with bas-reliefs. Patterae are also usually used to decorate friezes, even when neither columns nor pilasters are expressed. On an astylar wall, it lies upon the architrave and is capped by the mouldings of the cornice. A metope is a, reg- a rectangular architectural element that fills the space between two triglyphs in a Doric frieze, which is a decorative band of alternating triglyphs and metopes above the architrave of a building of the Doric order. So th- that's what we're up against here, man. I, 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 yeah, as far as I understand it, this is mainly just looking at the pictures. We're talking about sculptures. What you hang on a wall, the ones running up around the edges of the building at the top bit. But who knows? Bloody pilasters and architraves and alternating triglyphs. This made me wish, honestly, it made me long to return to the simple world of plutonium isotopes and gamma particles instead. Anyway. It's these sculptures, right, uh, plus a few larger ones, pediments, uh, they're called apparently. Uh, it's these sculptures that have become known to, to, to us today as the Elgin Marbles. Now, I remember when I first heard about the Elgin Marbles years ago. I can't remember exactly when it was, but I remember when I first came across this term, I assumed that they, that they were marbles like the ones that you'd play with when you were a kid. I thought that they were like ancient playthings from, from years ago, you know, little ancient Greek kids flicking marbles around in the sandpit like we used to when we were young. And I thought, well, what a great big bloody fuss about some cat's eyes. What's going on there? Like, how is this such a big deal? But no, the, the term marbles obviously refers to the fact that they're made of marble. Um, and uh, it's still used to describe the, the sculptures that adorned the Parthenon that were taken by Elgin. He didn't take, he didn't take all of them, right? He didn't take all the ones that were there. But uh, about half of the remaining uh, sculptures and, and friezes and metopes and pediments and whatever else that were still there, they were taken by Elgin. Those are the Elgin marbles as opposed to the more broader Parthenon marbles or Parthenon sculptures that encompasses the ones that some of the ones that still remain in Greece. But again, we'll get into that. We'll talk about that. Let's not get ahead of ourselves here. Let's talk about the, the Parthenon. We'll talk about its sculptures uh, and, we'll, and we'll talk about everything that they went through before they were nicked by the British and shipped off to London. <clears throat> Once it was finished, the Parthenon was an incredible feat of architecture and design. Beautiful to look at. uh, One of, if not the finest example of classical Greek architecture. Richly decorated, painted, all colourful. We look at classical sculpture now and we sort of imagine that the ancient Greeks lived in marble white buildings with unadorned columns and and statues just lying about everywhere. But that's that's not actually the case. These classical buildings and their statues and sculptures, they were usually painted, and they were usually painted quite brightly too. It's just that the paint obviously hasn't stood the test of time while the stone has. So when in your mind you imagine an ancient Greek city and its its buildings and sculptures, you probably imagine that 
they, they, they were all marble white, right? They're all unblemished, unadorned, um, much like neoclassical architecture these days would suggest. You know, you go to, you go to a city like, uh, like Washington, D.C., you look at the Capitol building, you look at the, the, the Lincoln Memorial. These are neoclassical, um, the, the White House, right? Neoclassical architecture um, and, and very famously, <laughs> the White House. It's not the painted lots of colors house. But back in the ancient Greek world, their buildings and their statues and their sculptures, they were painted. They were painted in bright colors. It's just that we've sort of we've sort of labored under this uh, this misapprehension that uh, they were all bone white because that's that's how they were presented to us right when when the neoclassicist revival took place when archaeologists are, are taking a renewed interest in in the classical world the paint had chipped off and so we all thought that uh, that these buildings and statues and sculptures were white but that's that's not the case it wasn't the case with the parthenon it wasn't the case with with innumerable other cultural legacies of the greeks but it is how we tend to imagine it because of uh, the, the things that we were told essentially by by mainstream archaeology throughout the 19th into the 20th century, it's only now sort of like feathers on dinosaurs, right? It's starting to sort of change now as we have a deeper and more more complete understanding of uh, of, of the way these buildings were uh, were decorated. Anyway, anyway, uh, the Parthenon itself, right? It uh, it served as a uh, as a temple up as part of the Acropolis, sort of. Um, it wasn't it wasn't really a temple um some people were able to go and worship sometimes but it wasn't open for worshippers just to go in carte blanche go and pay their respects to uh, to athena go and pray and worship whatever else kind of kind of like the good plates right that your mum had when you were a kid sure in theory you could eat off them but you never actually did except on extremely special occasions so the the parthenon in truth served more as a treasury uh, more than it did as, as an actual temple, which was quite common, um, even among, even amongst temples that were commonly used as places of worship, uh, they they were often filled full of uh, gold and, and, and riches. Immense wealth was was housed in the Parthenon in, in its early history, especially in that statue of Athena that I mentioned that Phidias uh, Phidias created. It, it contained hundreds of kilos of gold that that could, if the need be. Um, if, if the need arose, it could be extracted from the statue and minted into coins. Pretty interesting way to store your wealth, uh, using it to decorate a, a statue, which couldn't very easily be you know, carried off, then just rip out the gold if, if you need it for whatever reason. Anyway, for hundreds of years, right, the Parthenon, it stood overlooking Athens uh, with the rest of the Acropolis until the middle of the third century CE. And it's at this point that, uh, uh, as I say, after hundreds and hundreds of years of being used as a temple to Athena, it's at this point that the Parthenon began to undergo some very, very significant changes, which resulted in it ultimately being used as a Christian church, being used as an Islamic mosque, and then being blown up by gunpowder. So let's get into all of this, shall we? In the mid-3rd century CE, the Parthenon was very badly damaged by a fire. Its roof was burnt up and much of its interior was ruined. And then to make things worse, not long after that, Athens was sacked by Germanic raiders in 276 CE, these raiders raised buildings left, right, and centre, uh, and this resulted in the Parthenon being busted up, busted up even worse than before. Right, this on top of the fire, so it's not a, not a good time for the Parthenon. In, into the fourth century CE, repairs were carried out on on the Parthenon, restoring at least some of its former glory. But as we move into the fifth century, the Parthenon underwent a significant change when, in 435 CE, Emperor Theodosius II outlawed pagan worship. Now, this was part of the ongoing Christianization of the, the Roman Empire and later Roman empires, plural. Um, and uh, it, it meant in the end that after almost a thousand years as a temple to Athena, the Parthenon was closed. It did reopen. Uh, it reopened instead as a Christian church in the years before the 6th century, and this time lasted again almost a thousand years as a very important place of worship and pilgrimage uh, for Christians this time around. The building, as you can imagine, underwent a fair bit of change during this time. Christian iconography was added to it. Uh, some of the decorations and sculptures were removed. But then, as we jump forward now all the way to the 15th century, then the Ottomans arrived. They captured Athens in 1458 after a two-year siege, and by the end of the century, after taking the city and taking control of areas like the Acropolis, they had converted the Parthenon into an Islamic mosque. This time, however, it didn't remain so for a thousand years. Uh, when the Turks captured Athens, the Parthenon was, broadly speaking, 
it was intact, it was in pretty decent condition, but this would not remain the case for very long uh, because of what happened about 200 years later in 1687. In 1687, the Ottomans were fighting the Venetians, who were backed by the Holy Roman Empire and Greek rebels. They were, they were fighting for control of the Peloponnesian Peninsula in a conflict known as the Moran War, or the Sixth Ottoman-Venetian War. Uh, and they had another one too, actually, in the 18th century, the Seventh. Um, a total of seven wars between the Ottomans and the Venetians. They bloody loved a scrap, it seems, the, the, the two of them. Um, and honestly... It's kind of surprising that the Venetians actually kept coming back for more because the final score across the seven Ottoman-Venetian war, uh, Ottoman wars was 6-1 in favour of the Turks. Now, of course, the Italians make up for it these days on the soccer pitch, I suppose. Um, they've never yet lost to Turkey. Uh, the Ottomans may have been 6-1 up in those wars, but Italy is 10-0-3 in the beautiful game. A history of which, incidentally, you can hear in episodes 135, get across it. But uh, yes, no, look, the, the Ottomans, uh, at this point in, in 1687, they're fighting the Venetians in, in the one war that they actually lost against them. That was the one in the, in the six and one. And uh, during this war, the Turks decided to use, right, they decided to use the Acropolis and specifically the Parthenon for some bloody reason as a place to store their gunpowder. Now, what was this conversation like? What has happened between the people who decided on 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 this? Like, what what are they saying to each other? Oh, hey, um, you know, I've been thinking about it. Where, where do you reckon we should put all of this dangerous, dangerously explosive stuff that is not only of vital strategic importance to the war effort, but also has the potential to blow up and completely destroy everything around it if hit by enemy artillery? Oof, ah, good question. That actually, where where should we put it? Actually, I'll tell you this. Why don't we put it in those ancient buildings prominently visible on top of that great big hill that overlooks the city? Oh, mate, great idea. Really good thinking. You've done it again. Let's do that. In 1687, as the Venetian mortars pounded down on Athens, one of them hit the Parthenon and the gunpowder inside blew the hilltop to smithereens. The Parthenon suffered a huge amount of damage. It fell into near total ruin instantly. And in the years that followed, people would just come up to the Acropolis and loot the marble and the statues and whatever else from the ruins. I'm sorry to say that the Ottomans, they were not particularly careful custodians of these ancient buildings and the treasures within them. Anyway, as the, uh, as the power and as the influence of the Ottomans waned um, uh, into the 18th and 19th centuries, more and more Europeans uh, came to the lands that they controlled, areas like Greece. They were able to access Athens, visit the cultural marvels there like the Parthenon or what was left of it. And it's now that we finally come to the story of Thomas Bruce, 7th Earl of Elgin, who in 1798 was appointed as the British ambassador to the Ottoman Empire, and who in 1801 began one of the greatest art heists the world has ever seen. Elgin seemed to have quite a keen interest in classical history. Uh, before departing for his new job, he asked uh, he asked the British government, he said, uh, listen, do you, do you want me while I'm over there to to do any work, studying the Parthenon, maybe maybe take some some casts of the decorative sculptures that have survived, do some drawings, whatever else. Uh, the British government, they, they listened to his proposal, they thought about it, and they said, absolutely bloody not, mate, couldn't be less interested, don't waste your time with that, just you get over there, you bloody keep an eye on old mate, sell him the third, right? He's always, he's up to something, he always seems so busy with his poetry and his music, he must be up to something, so you, that's what should be occupying your attention, Elgin, old mate, okay, just you, just you stay focused on that. However... Elgin wasn't to be put off. He decided to take matters into his own hands, and so after establishing himself over in Constantinople, he commissioned artists to travel to Athens and take the casts and the drawings of these sculptures that he sought. However, after doing this, he was told that people in Athens were still in the habit of taking damaged marble statues and sculptures that had fallen off the Parthenon and that were just laying there amongst the ruins. And apparently, people were doing this uh, in order to create lime, right? Calcium oxide, not the, not the citrus fruit. They were making lime by burning the sculptures. This is, from what I could understand, this is a way that you can make lime by burning marble. 
at a high enough temperature, it calcinates and, and goes from being being calcium carbonate to, to calcium oxide and gives off carbon dioxide in the process. See, look at this. Chemistry, physics, much simpler than bloody classical architecture, mate. Anyway, this isn't something that I realised you could even do, burn rocks to make different rocks, but apparently that's how it goes. Um, and according to reports that Elgin was receiving, uh, this was what was happening to the priceless works of art in the Pantheon. So why we while we will get into the... We'll get into the ongoing argument properly a little later in the episode, as I mentioned. Um, it is fair to say that Elgin was, in part at least, motivated by his desire to conserve and protect these sculptures from wanton destruction. Now, there's a lot more to it than that, of course, but it is worth remembering as we now continue the story of what Elgin did next. Because initially, Elgin had only intended to, to draw and cast these sculptures, right? He didn't intend to take any way with him. But before long... His team was also removing the sculptures and taking them away. Now, Elgin, um, Elgin claimed that um, his team were, were, were only collecting sculptures or decorative panels that had fallen from the building and, the, and the, that were just laying around on the ground. I don't know if that's true. That's what he said happened. Um, and he also claimed to have official approval to do this, to take, this, take these, uh, these marbles away. Not only from the Ottoman Sultan Selim III, but also from the Ottoman governor of Athens. Now, once again, I don't know if this is true. No definitive proof of any such approval of, has, has, has ever been produced. But again, this is what Elgin said happened. And it's here, I think, that we should note, right, something else that often doesn't get brought up in, in the ongoing controversy and debate about the Elgin marbles. It's something that is certainly less relevant these days, but it's still, it's still something that I think we should keep in mind here. Obviously, people go after the British today for having nicked the marbles and for having benefited from their possession for, for, for so long. But they aren't the only ones at fault here. The Ottoman Empire was just as complicit as the British in the removal of these Greek treasures 200 years ago. Obviously, the Ottoman Empire isn't around anymore. But as the governmental power in Greece at the time... They had a duty of care over things like the Acropolis, over things like the Parthenon, and they not only let them fall into ruin, but also hastened them on their way by using this ancient temple as a gunpowder warehouse. And then, on top of that, they just hand away these priceless treasures because some British diplomat asked nicely? Even if Elgin's story isn't to be, isn't to be believed, even if he did steal these marbles without governmental approval... That still doesn't get the Ottomans off the hook. It still doesn't reflect well on them because why wasn't the Acropolis secured in that case? Why did the Ottoman authorities not stop the British from looting the Parthenon or just stop the people from people of Athens from nicking these, this, these bits of marble and burning them for building materials? Either the Ottomans agreed to the British taking the marbles and and just let them cart them away, in which case they were grossly irresponsible in their role as custodians of the, of the Acropolis, or they didn't notice or didn't act when Elgin and the British started pillaging one of the most important cultural areas in Western history, in which case, again, the Ottomans were grossly irresponsible in their role as custodians of the Acropolis. So, in my view, at least, the Ottomans do bear some of the responsibility for the ongoing controversy that we'll, we'll talk about uh, by the end of the episode, either by being actively complicit in the looting of the Acropolis or by doing nothing to prevent it. No matter how you slice it, the Ottomans were enormously negligent in looking after this territory of theirs. And that's one of the reasons that we have this problem now, 200 years later. Anyway, these marbles were removed. Whatever the whatever the reasoning, whatever the, the the case around their removal was, they they were shipped off by the British. They were removed from the uh, from the Parthenon by Elgin's team. The sculptures were shipped to Malta, which was a British protectorate at the time, and they stayed there for years before finally being shipped all the way back to Britain. Um, this protected them from being burnt into building materials, of course. This removal. Um, and many sculptures that would have otherwise been destroyed by the lax custodianship of the Ottoman, they survive to this very day, thanks to Elgin removing them. But before we go too bonkers and award this bloke the Conservationist of the Century Award, it's worth not noting that Elgin, he had uh, a few other motivations for taking these marbles away. It wasn't just for their conservation. He had the old dollar signs in his eyes when he ordered this excavation and removal of the marbles. 
He paid for the whole thing personally, right? He'd asked the British if they wanted to, to get in on this with him. They said no. And so he just paid for it all out of his own pocket. The bill ran up to around £75,000. In today's terms, that is £4.7 million. A very, very expensive undertaking. However, Elgin considered this money that he spent to be an investment. He had plans to establish a private museum back in Britain with these sculptures as the main attraction, which in time, of course, would more than make up for the money that he spent on obtaining them. In total, Elgin took away around 75 metres of frieze, 15 metope panels, and 20 or so individual pediment statues, which is a huge bloody haul. Uh, It took years for his team to nick all of this. Um, And he also took elements of other structures up in the Acropolis, other little bits and pieces from different buildings were were carried away back to Britain with the famous Parthenon marbles. And as you can imagine, this resulted in a lot more damage being done to the already damaged Acropolis and Parthenon. While Elgin claimed that uh, most of the material he took was just laying about on the ground, um, some was very evidently hacked off the Parthenon itself, damaging both the sculpture and the building during the removal process. And it wasn't much better as they were sent off overseas too, as they made the trip back to Britain. Um, One of the ships carrying a load of the marbles was wrecked off the Greek island of Kythera. Elgin had to cough up to pay divers to retrieve the marbles from the sea floor, which wouldn't have, well, certainly wouldn't wouldn't have improved their condition in any way. Um, But overall, um, Elgin's haul of marble from the Parthenon represented about half of the sculptures that were once attached to the building, or or half of what had survived anyway, right, in the wake of the the gunpowder explosion and and Athenian locals nicking bits and pieces from the the Parthenon for for building supplies. Um, What Elgin managed to carry off represented half of what remained, right? The other half remained in Greece um, today on display in the Acropolis Museum. We'll talk about that. But Uh, Around half of the surviving remnants of the Parthenon marbles were shipped back off to Britain and became known as the Elgin marbles. They still bear this name today, still bearing the name of the bloke who organised their theft in the first place. And uh, when it comes to Elgin getting to Britain, when it comes to him returning from his time as uh, as ambassador to to the Ottoman Empire, he had a very, very difficult time of it, interestingly, getting, getting back to his home country. Um, he decided to uh, travel back to Britain via Italy and France, and this proved to be a bad move because while travelling through France in 1803, Britain and France decided to once again get stuck into their shared national pastime of going to war with each other. Now, Elgin, as a high-ranking noble British diplomat, he was taken as a prisoner of war. The French attempted a prisoner exchange. They wanted to swap him for a French general who was in British custody, but the British, in uh, what was probably a very a very demoralising outcome for uh, for Elgin, said, uh, no, that's fine, thanks, uh, we're, we're, we're good. He, he, he's not worth a general. Um, so as a result, uh, Elgin was kept as, well, technically as a prisoner. He was released on parole. He gave his word not to leave France and so was more or less set free as long as he stayed in France. He wasn't going to get into, into any trouble. Um, and he kept this promise. He kept this promise for years until 1805 when his wife, who was pregnant, was allowed to leave France for Britain on compassionate grounds so she could go and give birth back at home. And then one year later, Elgin also was allowed to return home uh, on the condition that he <laughs> on the condition that he returned to France if asked to by the French. Now, this was a, uh, a promise that Elgin took very seriously. Uh, it destroyed his career as a diplomat because he now couldn't be sent off to represent Britain somewhere else because if the French wanted their prisoner back, he felt he felt honour bound, right, to stick by the promise that he'd made and, and he said that he would have to return if, he, if Napoleon asked him to. Now, this was obviously admirably principled of him, um, especially as it effectively ended his career, but it wasn't the only thing that brought total ruination upon him. Because after getting back to Britain in 1806, Elgin found out that his wife was having an affair. And not just with anyone, bravely unafraid of cliché, his wife was shagging one of his oldest and best mates. A pair of bloody snakes, the two of them. Elgin took his wife to court, seeking a divorce, and gained one through an act of parliament, if you'll believe it. But he didn't stop there. He He wasn't satisfied to just have taken his wife to court. He also took 
his mate to court, suing him for, this is not a joke, suing him for seduction. I didn't realise that you could take someone to court for being too sexy, but apparently Elgin did, and he won too. So you'd think not a bad outcome for the bloke, but the problem was that despite getting the outcome that he wanted in in both of them, these court cases were extremely public and everyone enjoyed the scandal of this nobleman's life falling down around his ears. Because think about it like this, it was essentially just celebrity drama. It would have been splashed all over the front page of the, I don't know, early 19th century equivalent of Who Weekly. People are bloody loving it. And it's extremely embarrassing for Elgin. Not only is his career as a career as a diplomat essentially over, things are only going to get worse for him from here, right? Because as I'm sure you know, litigation is a very expensive. And here's Elgin now, right? He's unable to work. He's not earning anything. He's two court cases deep. He's in the middle of a huge public scandal. And he's just got finished spending tens of thousands of pounds on these bloody marbles, so things are not going well for Elgin. Once the marbles arrive back in Britain, right, um, Elgin, rather than set up the museum that he'd planned to, he had to sell them in order to try to keep on top of his growing debts. And in the end, in 1816, Elgin sold what he'd nicked from the Parthenon to the British government for £35,000, less than half of what he'd spent on bringing the damn things over. And after this, he spent the rest of his life both embroiled in scandal and avoiding his increasingly impatient creditors, uh, eventually fleeing back to France of his own will, I might add, to avoid avoid them, to escape them. Um, And ultimately, that's where he died, in Paris in 1841. So that's it for Elgin. His involvement with the sculptors effectively ended in uh, in 1816 when he sold them to the British government. So let's let's talk instead about what happened to them then. The British government was seemingly a little concerned about buying these marbles from Elgin. Um, And so before they did so, a a parliamentary committee was established to investigate whether Elgin had acquired these marbles legally and legitimately. And in a scene reminiscent of that, uh, that stupid Photoshop job of Obama giving himself a medal... This committee determined that Elgin had acted legally and legitimately at all times. He was cleared of any wrongdoing. Firm handshakes all round, gentlemen. So for all the people clutching their pearls today about the so-called theft of these priceless historical artefacts, maybe educate yourselves. Maybe actually, you know, do your research. Because the British government investigated this British man stealing something from overseas for the benefit of Britain and found there to be no issues whatsoever. The uh, the evidence given at this committee was very interesting. Elgin maintained that he had indeed been given permission by the Sultan to take the marbles, but he wasn't able to produce any original copies of such documents, just supposed translations is all he could come up with. Um, and uh, witnesses that saw the sculptures being taken Uh, attested that they saw Elgin's team bribing the Ottoman authorities in Athens as they did so. But uh, Elgin explained this away as just being the done thing. I mean, of course, right? You have to grease some palms to get anything done. You know how it is. Elgin further defended his actions by maintaining that he had done the right thing, that the Ottomans weren't looking after these historical treasures, that they were just laying about uncared for, and that had he not acted, then they might have been destroyed or even worse, ended up in the hands of the French. So a convincing argument, to be sure. Um, There's no doubting that Elgin's intervention did result in some or many, really, of the the marbles uh, being being protected from, you know, at the very least, being burnt into lime. But uh, ultimately, this committee, after hearing arguments that were made both for and against Elgin having taken the marbles illegally, uh, at the end of the day... Uh, the the committee, the people who were the direct beneficiaries of this alleged theft, they decided that it was all above board. So there you go. The British government then duly bought the Elgin marbles and the public went absolutely bananas over them. Elgin had displayed them himself beforehand to enthusiastic crowds, but once they were on display at the British Museum, it was chaos. The museum was utterly swamped. Attendance records smashed to pieces. People couldn't get enough of these things. It was an absolute sensation. Hundreds of thousands of people visited the British Museum, marvelling at this wonder from a bygone age. 
Plaster casts were taken of the uh, of the sculptures. They were distributed all around the world. The Elgin Marbles, as I say, an absolute sensation. The British Museum had to keep building bigger and more expensive galleries for the things. Um, ever since they got they first got their hands on them, the Eld- Elgin Marbles have been an enormously popular attraction for visitors. Still are they still are today? And look, I'll say this. Certainly there's no denying that the Ottomans weren't very responsible custodians of the marbles and the sculptures or of the ancient wonders of Athens more broadly. But the British claim that they have been and still are better custodians of these treasures, uh, they didn't fare much better with looking after the Elgin marbles and the Ottomans, to be honest. The... uh, the, the 19th century London atmosphere was thick with pollution and that, plus the popularity and, and you know, the great, the great crowds of people that came to see the marbles, meant that the, the Elgin marbles became dirty and sooty and grubby before long. And you might look at that and go, well, that's not very good custodianship, but that actually wasn't the problem. The problem was how the British then tried to clean the marbles. That was what really messed them up and messed them up in a way that was sadly irreparable. In trying to clean up the Elgin marbles after they were, you know, made all grubby and dirty and sooty, whatever else, while on display in London, museum staff used chisels and scrapers. They they rubbed the marbles with coarse powders. They even used nitric acid to clean the marbles in an attempt to get them brand new, bright white, sparkling again. Because remember remember what I said before, how we've sort of laboured under this misapprehension that the, the ancient Greek world was a, was a world of shining bright white marble? The British were under this incorrect assumption as well. They thought that the marble should be a bright, pure white. So they scraped and scrubbed away at them, hoping they would end up white again. In fact, the marble that was used to create the Parthenon um, had uh, it has a natural tendency to turn a kind of honey colour after it's been quarried. And so the British damaged these marbles for nothing. They did so much irreparable damage to these treasures. They removed up to two and a half millimetres from their surfaces, permanently eroding details from many of the sculptures. And again, for nothing. Now, obviously... And correctly, people have tried to hold the British Museum to account for their treatment of the marbles throughout the 19th and 20th centuries. Quite aside from the ownership debate that we're coming to, the British have always claimed custodianship of these artefacts. They claim that they are the best people to look after them. So what do they have to say about the enormous damage that was done to the Elgin marbles while they were in British possession? Well, here... Exalted Listener is a selection of some of the official responses verbatim from the British Museum when questioned about their treatment of the Elgin marbles since having come into possession of them. What about this classic to open with? Mistakes were made at the time. Just a, a lovely use of the passive voice there. Mistakes were made. No mention of who made them. They were just mistakes, okay? They were made. They didn't belong to anyone. They were just made. They spontaneously came into being like magic. How about this one? Um, <clears throat> the damage had been exaggerated for political reasons. Now, honestly, in fairness, this might be true. I don't know. But again, it's a bit of a lack of ownership there, Um Although, really, it's actually something of a, conf- of, a, of a confession, isn't it, right? Oh, yes, we did damage them, sure, but just just not as badly as everyone is saying. But here's my favourite, right? Here is my favourite quote from the British Museum when it comes to the Elgin marbles. <clears throat> the Greeks were guilty of excessive cleaning of the marbles before they were brought to Britain. Now, years ago, I used to work as a primary school teacher. And let me tell you this. The schoolyard excuse, well, they started it. It is just as popular now as it was when I was a kid at school. And in what is, I think it's fair to say, a classic bit of whataboutism, the British Museum uh, attempts to downplay the damage that they caused to the Elgin marbles by by saying that, oh, well, yeah, sure, even if we did damage them, though, through cleaning, the Greeks did it first. As my friend Jim Sharkey once taught me, every act of whataboutism is a confession. This is not the ironclad excuse that the British were perhaps hoping it would be. Anyway, the point is this. 
A key argument that the British make in their claim to keeping the marbles, even today, is that they are the superior custodians. And all this cleaning stuff is not the only reason that that perhaps isn't to be believed. Because in addition to the damage caused by the British while cleaning the marbles, in the time that the marbles have been part of the British Museum's collection, not only have they been overcleaned, they've been vandalised. Someone once tried to drill a hole in them to steal the lead inside. And then in 1981, one of the statues was damaged when a skylight fell onto it. So keep that in mind as we now finally get to the ownership controversy that has been going on for almost 200 years, causing a huge amount of diplomatic tension and consternation between Britain and Greece. In the 1830s, Greece won its independence from the Ottoman Empire, and in 1835, they officially requested that the British return the Elgin marbles. The British, needless to say, refused. They weren't about to let these Greeks kidnap what they had rightfully stolen. But the Greeks maintained their claim on the marbles and insisted that the British return them right through the 19th and into the 20th centuries, a problem that the British addressed by just pretending it didn't exist. In 1984, the Greeks took the British to the United Nations over this issue. They appealed to UNESCO, again requesting the the return of the Elgin Marbles. But again, Britain denied to return them. They had a range of arguments, which we'll come to directly, but one of the key ones was that they were, as I mentioned, better custodians. Falling skylights notwithstanding. Okay, fine, said the Greeks. You think you're the better custodians? We'll fix that problem. We'll build a museum for the marbles. A better museum? Let's see what your excuse is then. In 2000, the Greeks began work on the Acropolis Museum, which opened in 2009. You can visit it today and you can see the rest of the marbles from the Parthenon that weren't nicked by the British that are on display there. And hilariously, it's my favourite thing about the Acropolis Museum, you can also, uh, not only can you see the Parthenon marbles that are there, you can also see the deliberately empty spaces that were left in the displays at the Acropolis Museum ready for the return of the Elgin Marbles in what is one of the most terrific displays of passive aggression. But still, even after the Acropolis Museum was built and and ready to receive these Elgin Marbles, uh, sort of undercutting the idea that the British were the better custodians, the British still refused to return the marbles. They have refused UNESCO's offer to mediate between the British and the Greeks. Um, They continue to largely ignore the requests that the Greeks continue to make. More recently, there, there have been some opening negotiations between the two nations. But nonetheless, the Elgin marbles remain a huge sticking point in relations between Greece and Britain. Um, And these relations were worsened. This whole issue was exacerbated just last week at a time of recording when British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak cancelled a meeting with his Greek counterpart Kyriakos Mitsotakis. Mitsotakis compared the British holding onto the marbles to the Mona Lisa being sawn in half. And the British Prime Minister did not care for this nasty attitude. And so he took his ball and he went home, cancelling an upcoming meeting and causing another diplomatic incident. Sunak is very firmly holding the British line. He refuses point blank to use Parliament to pass laws that will ship the marbles off to Greece, which is interesting because he seems to have no issue with using Parliament to pass laws that ship people off to Rwanda. Anyway, last week's incident was the latest in an ugly nearly two-century stoush between Greece and Britain. But Britain just will not back down over the marbles. They stick to their guns through thick and thin and refuse to return them. Now, you may be wondering why. I have, obviously, overplayed my hand. I've revealed myself as the disgustingly woke leftist anti-colonial bleeding heart that angry emails from angrier listeners regularly remind me that I am. Sorry about that, everyone. I, I really should try to keep the politics out of history. Never mind that history is just, you know... Politics, mostly, just politics with its watch set slow. Anyway, as obviously biased as I'm sure you've guessed I am, um, I will try to nonetheless present the arguments that the British used to defend their claim to the Elgin marbles uh, as as neutrally as possible, without any editorialising here. So, firstly, as we've discussed, there is the argument that the British are the better custodians for these priceless ancient treasures. They will take better care of the marbles. They have more experience. They have more expertise. They have more resources in looking after these ancient artifacts. 
we've talked about that pretty extensively. We don't need to go into it too deeply. Uh, We've also talked about how, according to the British, uh, there was nothing illegal about the way that they came into possession of these marbles. Elgin took them legally with governmental approval, and the British then bought them off him, fair and square. Uh, Additionally, Elgin saved the marbles from the damage and the destruction that they would have suffered had they remained in Greece. Those that remain behind are in worse condition than than the ones in the hands of the British. Additionally, having the marbles in the British Museum means that they can be seen and enjoyed by more people. The British Museum receives four times as many visitors as the Acropolis Museum, so the marbles staying in Britain means that they have a a much larger cultural impact, as simply put, more people get to see them. And similarly, they're better suited to remain in the British Museum surrounded by other artefacts from ancient times, as it means that they can be viewed in a broader historical context amongst the histories and the artefacts of other ancient cultures. Also, it would be impossible in any case to display all of the marbles as a unified whole from the Parthenon. The idea that the marbles should be repatriated to Greece to make this collection complete doesn't make any sense, because about half of the Parthenon marbles have been destroyed and lost forever. So it doesn't make sense to return a fraction of what would all what would be and will always be a fractional collection. It's not as if sending them back to Greece would result in a complete collection, right? And finally, the British Museum claims that as the Elgin marbles have been in Britain for over 200 years, they now are part of Britain's cultural heritage and that they too have a cultural claim to them, just as Greece does. So this, as succinctly as possible, um, explains the British position on the matter. If you want to read a much less succinct and much less explanatory piece of writing about it all, uh, head over to the British Museum's website and read through their page on the marbles. Um, because remember those remember those school assignments that had really, really long word lengths um, and you just write and write and write and it didn't make sense, but hey, you had to hit the word count, add in a couple of extra words here and there, say the same thing twice in different words or express identical ideas with older terminology or lay out a repeated point with changed phrasing, you know, that sort of thing. It's like that, honestly, the, the British Museum website. It really is a very impressive 1,200 or so words that say approximately two-thirds of bugger all. Um, anyway, I, I should say there actually is one more argument um, that the British wheel out every now and again, but we'll, we'll come back to that once we've been through the opposing arguments on, on the Greek side of things. It'll make more sense after that. The Greeks, of course, they've got their own list of reasons as to why the marbles should be um, should be returned. And in the spirit of fairness, uh, we will go through their arguments as well. Uh, and I will, once again, try not to editorialise. The Greeks, um, they strongly refute the idea that the British are better custodians of the marbles. They cite the extensive damage that has been done to the marbles while in British possession. And further to this now, of course, as I mentioned, the Acropolis Museum is a modern, purpose-built environment in which the marbles will receive the very best care that they can possibly receive. And the Greeks also insist that um, even if the marbles weren't taken illegally, a point that they don't cede, but even if they were taken legally, they were still taken unethically. And legal doesn't always mean right. After all, as we said before, even if there was a legal agreement between the British and the Ottomans, the marbles weren't ever really the Ottomans to give away in the first place. So it's not as simple as the British waving about a bit of paper and saying, oh, it was all fine. On top of this, these artefacts have a special and very obvious cultural connection with Greece specifically. While they are more broadly a high watermark in the cultural output of the Western world, they are still very specifically Greek, and this this should be reflected in where they are located. Further, the Acropolis Museum houses its marbles only a short distance from the Acropolis and from the Parthenon itself, enabling visitors to to more fully and thoroughly contextualise these artefacts in the place that they originated. And even if the collection of all the marbles from the Parthenon is impossible due to the fact that around half of them, as we said, have been destroyed forever, that doesn't make the remaining collection any more divisible. It's not as if just because all of them don't exist, that means that you can chop up the ones that do remain freely and and it doesn't mean anything. These are the principal arguments put forth by the Greeks, who, in my opinion at least, really are missing a trick by just pointing out that the British 
uh, uh, invoking what amounts essentially to finders keepers, and that doesn't really apply when you, you know, leave primary school. Um, and I will say, broadly speaking, even in Britain, it seems that more people than ever are in favour of the marbles being returned. A positive sign. Over the last few decades, the proportion of people supporting the return of the marbles has only grown and grown. For instance, in Britain itself, the number is up from 39% in 1998 to 59% in 2021. So there is broad public support um, for the return of the marbles, even in the nation that directly benefits from holding on to them. But as it stands, the British Museum and the British government, who would have to approve of the return of the, mar- of the marbles via a, an act of parliament for it to actually happen, they are steadfast in their refusal to return the Elgin marbles. And the final argument that they lay out in support of this stance, the, the last one that I want to leave you with here, uh, it was expressed by the then British Culture Secretary, Michelle Donnellan, who in 2022 outlined her view on the return of the marbles by saying, <clears throat> I can sympathise with some of the arguments, but I do think that is a very dangerous and slippy road to embark down. So in other words, if we have to return the marbles to Greece, what sort of precedent does that set? Imagine what'll happen next. We'll have people from all over the world coming forth and demanding the return of their stolen artefacts as well. Okay, good. Maybe you can also return the Benin bronzes to Nigeria, the Magdala treasures to Ethiopia, the Koh-i-Noor diamond to India, and the Guiago shield back home here to Australia, if you haven't bloody lost the thing. Now, look, it's not just the British, in fairness. The Germans have a bust of Nefertiti that should be in Egypt, and, and the Louvre in Paris would be half empty if they didn't have all the stuff that Napoleon stole. Believe it or not, the nation actually leading the way in returning the cultural artefacts that they've stolen is the USA. Many American museums have returned or are in the process of returning priceless halls of ancient treasure to their countries of origin. They are way ahead of European institutions in that regard. But look, the point is this. The British rightly fear that returning the Elgin marbles will result in countless other nations coming forward with renewed vigour as they demand the return of their stolen artefacts as well. And it would certainly set a precedent, one that is, as I say, in the midst of being very admirably set by museums over in the US who are returning artefacts to their rightful places of origin even as we speak. Maybe Britain, and everywhere else for that matter, maybe they should accept that the time has come to remedy these issues as best we're able. Maybe this precedent is not a bad one to set in the first place. I do cop a fair bit of flack in the old inbox for my criticism of colonialism, and I know that these listeners aren't going to be pleased to hear me spewing more woke lefty nonsense, but ex-colonial powers, they made their bed, and now they have to lie in it. And it's my belief, and the belief of many around the world, that they should do what they can to bear responsibility for the problems that they helped to cause and the wrongs that they did. The British returning the marbles would be only a very small step, but it would be It'd be the right one to take, because by such small steps, we progress slowly but steadily to a better future. We'll never be able to fix all the issues that the age of colonialism unleashed on the world, but that's not an excuse not to do what we can. And so it's my hope that in the not-too-distant future, the unfinished story of the Elgin Marbles receives the conclusion that it deserves, and that the British step up and do the right thing and return these treasures to their place of origin, where they can, finally, fill the empty spaces left in the Acropolis Museum, where they can be appreciated for countless generations to come in the place that they truly belong. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of the Elgin Marbles. And so if you were unsure, if you came across this podcast because you were looking for some answers as to why this has been in the news and what the fuss was about, hopefully it's answered some of them. Hopefully you, you've got a better understanding of, uh, of this whole uh, controversy now. But uh, as this episode is already 10,000 years long and as I do want to get across uh, listener correspondence and the Spotify rap thing, let's zip straight into having a chat about some of the people who got in touch and... Uh, Talk about those numbers, baby. There were lots and lots of people who uh, who wrote in 
sharing just how much time they've spent with the podcast over the last 12 months. And uh, I, I once again just want to express my my deep and very sincere gratitude to, to everyone, whether you listen to an episode occasionally, every now and again, whether you're a new listener who's in the process of catching up, maybe this is the first episode you've listened to. Welcome. By all means, welcome. Or if you are, are a half-ass history go-hard who has tens of thousands of minutes to your name, I really just can't properly tell you what it means to be to be part of your weekly routine, uh, part of the, the 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 media that you consume regularly. It, it, it's so humbling to be led into your life in this way, and uh, I want to thank in particular the people who got in touch with their with their Spotify wrapped uh, roundups here. The people who uh, let me know just how just how long they've spent listening to the podcast this year. Elijah Beach got in touch. Uh, Jonathan Cool, longtime listener from the Netherlands. Uh, Sherman Saw, listening over in Malaysia, Rob Jones, Zero Fire, Mark White, um, Avi Zeifman, who who called me history puppy. Um, not sure how I feel about that one. Anyway, uh, Nick Ruggiero as well, listening over in Adelaide. Sorry about that, mate. But not as sorry as I am for uh, Garen Bailey, who racked up 12,000 minutes listening in England, you poor bastard. Anyway, I'm glad, I'm glad there's something that you've got at the end of every week to look forward to. Ben Chambers came in at uh, at 13k. Good on you, Ben. Tory Strunk at a whisker just over 19,000, but uh, pipped at the post by Mariel Meng listening in Denmark, 19,270. Uh, cheers to the both of you. Daniel Lawson, a very strong performance with 22,252, just short of last week's record of uh, 23,695 put up by Henley. However, I thought that I thought that that record was untouchable, right? No one was going to do better than Hanley. Well, I'm sorry to tell you, Hanley, old son, you have been blown out of the water because we can kick things off off here with Liam Rigdon uh, listening over from Aotearoa, uh, the Kiwi here. He got 25K, 25,444 under his belt. But put to shame by Essie Loppy from Finland, 31,937, who... Also fell to Crystal Del Rosario, 32,168. Now, I've got the receipts for all of these. Screenshots were sent in. Um, and it doesn't stop there either because Murray Noker, 97, from Iceland, 35,954. Becky Andrews, 38,216. And a a very confident email coming in from Ryan Janagara uh, from WA, who was assured, he thought, of victory with 45,389 minutes. Ryan, old mate, I'm very sorry to say <laughs> that you did not manage to come in top place here because we had NB Cephalopod uh, at 46,000 minutes uh, presenting their uh, presenting their results, not just in with the Spotify wrapped receipt, but also in a fully broken down spreadsheet, which I did appreciate. Um, but even them, beaten by Sir Not Appearing in this film at 47,570. But exalted listeners, one and all, I will be immensely surprised if anyone manages to unseat who I am sure is the top listener for 2023 at 56,668 minutes. That is 944 hours or 39 days straight. It is Matt Holgate, who seems to have done very little else all year than listen to my Tin Pot History podcast. Matty, Good on you, mate. Thank you so very much. Um, I did some brief back-of-the-envelope calculation, right? Um, if we generously say that I release about an hour's worth of content every week, right, a 45-minute full-length episode and a 15-minute episode of Quarter Us History, that means that this year I only re- I'm only going to release 52 hours, right? And throughout the entire history of the podcast, I'm only at 200 and something, right? Because not all the old episodes are 45 minutes and there was no quarter hour history. So it's, no, it's nowhere near 280 hours that I've released, right? So this means that at the barest minimum, Matt has listened to every single episode an average of four or five times, which is just staggering. That's... The, I, it it feels like Matt has spent more time listening to this podcast than I've spent making it, to be honest. So, Matt, I'm not wearing a hat, but if I were, I wouldn't be because I would have taken it off to you, mate. Thank you so very much to you. And even if you're not a Matt Holgate who, you know, don't spend the, a significant proportion of your waking hours listening to me go on and on, 
I still want to express my immense appreciation that you listen to even one minute of this Silly History podcast, and I hope that you will continue to let, uh, let this show be part of your life for a very long time to come. Stay tuned because next week a, an exciting announcement is coming about half Ass history in 2024. Um, I think I've hinted at it. It's not the book. I'll be very clear. It's not the book. But uh, there'll be some uh, some changes coming to half Ass history very soon, very quickly. And I think you're going to like them. So uh, I'll get across that next ne- next week because this episode is already more than long enough. But uh, thanks for sticking with me for another episode of half Ass history. Looking forward to your company next week. Uh, oh, whoa, geez. Hang on. Housekeeping. Um halfhousehistory.net contact form email address in the in the show description um uh, patreon.com slash halfhousehistory if you want to support, support the show early access uh, uncut episodes show notes um merch shop uh tell your friends tell your enemies tell people about whom you feel largely ambivalent and uh, please do get in touch I'm, I'm thinking that from here on out I, I will actually include more listener correspondence in the show into 2024 so uh do send me emails thoughts feelings hopes dreams ambitions Mainly topic suggestions, honestly, is what I'm looking for. Topic suggestions is, is principally the thing that I'm looking for here. But hey, look, if you just need to send someone an email or something, I'll 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 read it. Probably I'll read it. Anyway, thank you, everyone. Old and new listeners alike for being here. See you next week for more nonsense. Until then, a question posed on Reddit. This one comes to us from Michelle Manese. Um, obviously, we talked a lot about ancient Greece, talked about their sculpture, the way that they express themselves through sculpture. And Michelle Manese wants to know, Based on their sculptures, ancient Greek men thought the ideal male body possessed a small penis. Do we have any idea what Greek women thought? <laughs>